Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Today is a different kind of podcast that you're used to here on the show because a man who is the foremost expert on the JFK assassination, who I interviewed for my movie, I Killed JFK, a few months back when it was in theaters, passed away the other day and I felt an obligation to release the full unedited interview that I had with him that no one has heard and it's the last interview he ever gave and this man the way he lived his life the way he fought for the truth the way he was relentless the way he did everything in his power to enroll people in what he believed in and the way he impacted people based on the force of nature attitude he had, it just affected me. And I loved interviewing him and... He was one of the most authentic and original people that I have ever met in my entire life. And I can only think to all of you listening, if you have the opportunity to live your life or your business with those qualities, I can only wish upon you that you could have the kind of career that Jim Mars had. 
Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in showbiz and you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. All right. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Thank you again for everything you guys do and the support that you've given this show is just unbelievable. So humbling. And I'm so grateful. Again, this episode is going to be very unique and different. I will tell you in advance before I give you a proper introduction for Jim that this was a Skype interview. It is not of the usual quality that you'll listen to on this show. It's not anything that I am proud of in terms of the quality, but a lot of these people were older that I interviewed and they really don't travel that much and they really don't like giving their locations of where they are and to get the kind of interview that I wanted on camera through Skype the technology is very very limiting so I hope that you can look past that and enjoy this interview for what it is because it will really really take your breath away the things that this man had to say about that day in dallas 54 years ago still haunts me to this day but it made me look in the mirror it made me think of myself and what my obligations are as a person in this world and it made me realize that nothing matters more than finding the truth not only in your business life, but in your personal life. And that is never more evident than when you hear the words of Jim Mars and what he talked about regarding the JFK assassination. It is truly, truly extraordinary. So without further ado, I'll give him the proper introduction, and then the podcast will start, and you'll notice a difference in the sound so hopefully you'll be able to get through that and enjoy this interview the way I enjoyed it, the final one of his career. All right, Jim Mars is a native of Fort Worth, Texas. He earned a Bachelor of Arts degree in journalism from the University of North Texas in 1966 and attended graduate school at Texas Tech in Lubbock for two years. He's worked for several Texas newspapers, including the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, where, beginning in 1968, he served as police reporter and general assignments reporter, covering stories locally in Europe and the Middle East. After a leave of absence to serve with the 4th Army Intelligence Unit during the Vietnam War, he became a military and aerospace writer for the newspaper and an investigative reporter. Since 1980, Mars has been a freelance writer, author, and public relations consultant. He also published a rural weekly newspaper along with a monthly tourism tabloid, a cable television show, and several videos. 
In 2007, Mr. Mars retired from the University of Texas at Arlington, where he had taught a course on the Kennedy assassination since 1976. His book, Crossfire, The Plot That Killed Kennedy, was published to critical acclaim and reached the New York Times paperback nonfiction bestseller list. It became a basis for one of the most respected films on the subject, Oliver Stone's JFK. And Mars even served as a chief consultant for both the film's screenplay and production. He has appeared on ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN, C-SPAN, the Discovery Channel, Learning, and History Channels. He is absolutely one of the most respected minds and experts on the JFK assassination and sadly just passed away from a heart attack at his home this week. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm honored to present to you my interview with Jim Mars. All right, ladies and gentlemen, very, very excited to introduce this guy. He was a journalist in 1963 in Dallas, an author of the New York Times bestseller, Crossfire, The Plot That Killed Kennedy, which was a basis for the Oliver Stone film, JFK. Please welcome my guest today. Very honored to have you here. What a pleasure. Jim Mars. Thank you, Barry. All right. We got you. This is fantastic. I can't believe it. Sometimes when I get stopped by security and they ask me for my ID, when I get up to finally visit the guy that I'm visiting, I say, listen, great security. If your security was around in 1963, Kennedy would still be alive today. <laughs> uh, there's more truth to that than you probably know. Uh, one of the keys to the assassination is not so much... Uh, uh, who could get to Kennedy, but uh, who could uh, uh, pull the normal security away from him. Yeah, we're going to talk all about that. So who actually shot JFK? And do you believe that James Files delivered the, the fatal round? Uh, right now today, even though a lot of people have been named as a, a second gunman, uh, as far as I know, there's only two that's actually confessed that has any kind of credible evidence uh, to support that confession. And uh, uh, one of those is James Files, and one of those is a uh, was a Dallas policeman at the time, uh, Roscoe White. Both of them have uh, there's uh, evidence pointing uh, to their uh, involvement. But uh, to answer your question, uh, I'm not sure we'll ever know for absolute certain. Uh, who pulled the trigger that killed Kennedy. But it's really kind of inconsequential because uh, it's not so much who could have killed him. Anyone could have killed him, including the proverbial lone nut. The, the uh, real question is who had the power to cover it up for more than 50 years? Uh, this is an assassination of the president of the United States, leader of the free world. You know, uh, why has it taken more than 50 years for facts, evidence, and truthful information uh, to become known to the public. I never believed in our world the way it is the last 10 years of the way the media is and the way everything is found out and accessible. I can understand the first 25 or 30 years things being covered up. 
But the last 10 or 20, it's an informational age. People can get information from anywhere and put it out on the web and millions of people look at it. But in this situation, nothing. Why? Well, I, th I think you're looking at it from the, the wrong way. Uh, that information is out there. There's been people come forward. There's been people confess. There's been documents that have been brought forward, dribbled out over the years. The problem is the distribution of that information has not occurred, and that's because there's only five corporations control everything we see and hear, and they've seen to it that uh, most of this information does not reach the public. Why? <laughs> because in 1963, there was a coup d'etat, okay? And, uh, and unfortunately, most of corporate America went along with it. And so now they just cannot bring themselves to say, yeah, okay, we were either duped or we went along with it. I always say, let's go to the videotape. You have the most watched short film in history. And that's with the YouTube generation. It's still the most watched short film in history. You're talking about the Zapruder film. That's right. It clearly shows before the obstruction of the street sign, he's looking around. When he comes through the street sign, he's reaching for his throat in that position that happens when you get shot in the back. And then about three or four seconds later, he appears to be at least hit by one shot in the temple, but it looks like he was hit on the top of the head right before that. But I'm not an expert. I clearly visually see with pictures and moving film evidence that it wasn't a single bullet. Yet the Warren Commission and Arlen Specter and apparently Congress and the Senate and everybody else in the country and the world they have the film, they've seen the film, and they come out with the single bullet theory. I just don't understand how that was possible to sell that to the world and the American public when you're looking at the images. Well, uh, Warren Commissioner uh, John McCloy, uh, one of the most powerful men on that commission and, and a man with a, with a real checkered background, he was uh, uh, head of... Uh, uh, National City Bank that loaned more money to Adolf Hitler than anybody else, sat with Hitler in his box, then was named High Commissioner of Germany at the end of the war, sent all the Nazis over here under uh, Project Paperclip, and then sat on the Warren Commission. In early January 1964, before they had even really gotten underway in their investigation, I think he, he lined it out, Barry. He said, look, the thing that is of utmost importance is that we show the world that the United States is not just another banana republic where the uh, government can be changed through conspiracy. But uh, so that was their mandate, not truth, not to find out who actually killed Kennedy, not to find out what actually had happened, but to uh, mollify the passions of the world. The people on this committee, including Arlen Specter, were intelligent, well-educated people. Is there anybody that you know in your lifetime that after watching that film would write a report saying it's a single bullet? Not, not someone that was truthful and honest, uh, but you have to understand there was intense pressure 
uh, we don't know what was going through the minds of Specter and some of these other people on the committee, but uh, particularly the lawyers that were young lawyers at the time and were probably under intense pressure from their uh, more powerful and uh, veteran, uh, you know, uh, sponsors. Uh, but we do know that Earl Warren, uh, when President Johnson tried to get him to head the Warren Commission, he turned it down three times. He said, no, he said, I, I don't want to do that. He said, and I, I don't think that it's uh, constitutionally correct. One, one branch of the government should not be investigating another branch of the government. And Johnson, and this is well documented, twisted his arm and said, you were a military officer in World War One." you have to think of the country first and for the good of the country you need to chair that committee and you need to come up with uh, certain findings and that's what they did and if they can uh, arm pressure uh, earl warren like that then you can figure it'd be easy enough to pressure those young lawyers writing the report in terms of lee harvey oswald obviously the whole mandate was to say that he was the lone sole assassin of President Kennedy. Do you believe that Oswald fired a shot? No, I do not. And the reason I don't is because uh, they administered that paraffin test uh, less than two hours after the shooting, and it showed no gunpowder uh, on his hands and no nitrates or gunpowder on his face, only a few traces of nitrates on his hand, which does not prove he found a rifle. Plus, he's on the record as saying, no, sir, I didn't shoot anybody. I'm just a patsy. That's been suggested to voice uh, stress analysis, which shows he was telling the truth. Um, but you have to understand, Oswald was not just some innocent guy off the street. He was embroiled in this assassination plot. But uh, I don't think he pulled the trigger. Do you believe that he planted the gun and the three shells at the book depository? While that's possible, uh, personally, I don't think that's the case. I think he was exactly what he said. He said, I'm a patsy, which implies he was set up uh, to take the blame. And I think somebody else planted the rifles and the shell cases, et cetera, et cetera. So this whole plot's been involved for three to six months extensively. The day of Kennedy not anybody from the Secret Service, Kennedy said, I don't want to ride with the bubble on the top of the car. The bubble was there in Dallas for the top of the car, and he could have used it, and he was the decision maker on whether he used it or not. No one could tell him whether he uses it or he doesn't use it. LBJ, the CIA, the FBI, it's his decision. And it's on record as him saying, I want to be out there with the people and whatever. But let's assume that he was feeling differently. He was like, look, maybe I should put the bubble on. All this planning would have gone for naught. Did they take that into consideration? I think so. There is, uh, it's interesting because, uh, you know, in 1960, he ran against Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon was in Dallas the day of the assassination and had been there for a few days prior to that, uh, along with, uh, he was working for Pepsi-Cola uh, and Joan Crawford that was heading Pepsi-Cola at the time. And both of them are quoted in the Dallas newspapers as saying, uh, well, they're talking about all the heady security for Kennedy, but you know, they wouldn't need that for us because the people, uh, 
believe that we're more uh, in line with the national uh, mood than, than Kennedy, you know, so uh, we wouldn't need all that protection. So what I'm saying is I think that I think this was carefully laid uh, a plan to uh, to because Kennedy would have been aware of all of that. And uh, I think that's what influenced him in his decision not to put the bubble top on the car. So what evidence have you uncovered that Oswald was working with the U.S. government exactly as his mother always claimed he was? Well, uh, you know, you could have a whole program just on that. Uh, just going down the list, number one, there was a 201 personnel file they found years later in the CIA for Oswald. Uh, a military historian using internal CIA message traffic has shown clearly that the CIA was using uh, Oswald operationally prior to the assassination. We know he was being moved around, going to Mexico City, being in touch with this bunch and that, the Cubans and the mafia, and he's got, he touched his base with everybody. Uh, perfect Patsy. Uh, he got into Russia in a manner that has never been fully explained and probably was not commercially uh, viable. You couldn't do that at that time, the way he did it. Uh, he had a small Minox spy camera on him, like you see in the movies, you know, where they go and uh, it carried a uh, five-digit serial number, and yet the uh, uh, Minox spy cameras available commercially in the United States carried six-digit serial numbers. So this was probably issued to him by some intelligence service. Uh, plus, he, he's a 23-year-old kid, for God's sakes. And yet, in his short little uh, lifespan there, he was in touch with nine FBI agents. You know, I asked you members of the audience, you know, uh, uh, other than maybe socially, how many FBI agents have you come into contact with? Uh, it just goes on and on. His roommates uh, out at Tsugi said they went under intelligence training and they felt like Oswald had too, and he said he had. Uh, they uh, they put him up in the Queen Bee nightclub there in Tokyo on his paltry uh, uh, private salary uh, and and uh, this watering hole that costs hundreds of dollars. Where'd that money come from? It, it just goes on and on. Plus, a paymaster testified to the House Select Committee on Assassinations that he had forwarded uh, CIA funds to uh, Lee Harvey Oswald. It just it just goes on and on. And again, this information, it's not like it's not available. It's just never been told to anybody, never been put together, and uh, never, never just presented point blank to the American public. Plus, his mother, the very weekend of the assassination, and from then on, of course, everybody branded her as crazy. But uh, she said from that very weekend, she said, my son works for the United States government. And you would think his own mother should know. Obviously, that day... There were a lot of people who had assignments. What was Oswald's assignment that day? Well, we don't know. We probably never will know for sure since he was uh, working for several different uh, uh, bosses. Uh, you know, he started off with uh, in the Marines, which put him under the Navy Department, which means he probably had contact with Naval Intelligence. They probably turned him on to the CIA. CIA, and then at the time of the assassination, there was evidence that came out showing he was uh, uh, taking money from the FBI as an undercover informant, uh, which makes sense because uh, he was always complaining about a lack of money, so he probably would do what he could to make an extra buck. So, you know, there's no telling who he was working for. Uh, I think it's pretty clear that since he was not just an innocent off the street, 
that he was involved somehow in this conspiracy. Uh, I think probably and most logically what they did was they had some small assignment for him. Uh, Lee, uh, be in the building, be ready to take a phone call at 1230, okay? And we're going to give you further instructions. That way they know he's going to be in the building, out of sight. We can't have him standing out on the sidewalk when he's supposed to be shooting at the president. So he's in the building uh, and... Uh, and they know where he is. And then there's also this really odd incidence of all of the uh, electrical service to this Texas School Book Depository suddenly goes off right about the time of the shooting for just a few minutes, just long enough to where nobody could uh, call in. He couldn't do this, couldn't do that. The lights went out, the elevators weren't working. Uh, it's uh, it is really an oddity. Uh, and uh, personally, I think it has to do with the plot. So he leaves the depository. He goes to a movie theater during the day. Let's back up just a half second here. First off, let's assume that his mother's telling the truth and all of this, uh, all of the evidence showing that he was connected to U.S. intelligence, whether the FBI, CIA, Office of Naval Intelligence, who knows? Okay. And so uh, he knows this. And uh, they've had him reporting back. And he knows there's an assassination plot going on. So he's reporting back to him and he thinks that he's covered. Okay, somebody will put a stop to it because, uh, he, because he was there reporting on it. So then he's following his orders. He's in the book depository. He hears shots. Other people hear the shots, suppose that. Then people are screaming, the president's been shot. He goes, oh my God, it's happened anyway. And that's why he uh, then so then he leaves the building to try to go find out what's happening. And that's why he ends up in the movie theater, the third row, third seat, you know, trying to make an intelligence contact saying what went wrong. Who sends the police to an empty movie theater during the day? <laughs> exactly. But, well, we have a clue to that because the Dallas police intelligence chief rode, uh, said that he rode back from DB Plaza with a uh, office of Naval intelligence officer. Okay. And he gets back to police headquarters. And the first thing he does is type out a list of Texas book depository uh, employees and heading the list is a Harvey Lee Oswald of 602 Elizabeth. Okay. Well, there's two mistakes. Of course, it was Har Lee Harvey Oswald and he lived at 604 Elizabeth, not 602. So, you know, wh where did they get this misinformation? Well, later at the time of the House Select Committee on Assassination, uh, Colonel Jones of uh, Fourth Army Intelligence in Houston said he got a call from Dallas, said they had arrested a suspect. And his name was uh, uh, Alex James Heidel. Well, Harvey uh, Oswald had an, an ID on him as uh, Alex James Heidel when he was arrested. Uh, and but that was the only information they had. And Jones said he went to Army uh, military intelligence files and found that uh, A.J. Hydell cross-referenced to a Harvey Lee Oswald of 602, the very mistake. So it seems clear that U.S. military intelligence tipped off the Dallas police to who their suspect was and who they were looking for. Let's presume this is a well-thought-out, well-planned-out event. Why is the lower level mob guy who runs the local strip joint given the task 
of being involved in handing documents of Dealey Plaza and the motorcade route and taking shots at Oswald in his stomach to kill him. If this was this well-oiled machine by what people say is a CIA or FBI or Lyndon Johnson and Chicago mob plot to do what had to happen, it seems odd to me that the guy who's about to become the president of the United States, the guy who's the head of the FBI, the top levels of the CIA are going to endorse the guy who's the runner who was driving the guys around Dallas and calibrating the weapons. Let's get him on the grassy knoll to take the shot. And let's get the guy from the local titty bar to shoot Oswald in the police station. That'll work. I just don't understand how the top levels of factions of our government are having these people. Aren't there well-trained people? Well, first off, you have to understand that Jack Ruby's connection with organized crime goes all the way back to his childhood when he was running uh, messages for Al Capone in Chicago. Uh, and when you're that deeply involved, if they give you uh, marching orders, you just do it, you know. And I think uh, Ruby was chosen to silence Oswald because uh, he had access. Uh, everybody at the police station knew him. Everybody in Dallas who was anybody knew him. Uh, he was able to come and go. He was in the police station on Friday night. He even corrected uh, uh, District Attorney Henry Wade when Henry Wade said, and Oswald belongs to the Fair Play for Cupid Committee. And, the, and uh, Ruby said, no, that's, that's not right, you know. Uh, so he, he knew uh, much more about all this than anybody realizes. But again, let's go to the videotape when Oswald's walking through the police station and Ruby steps out and shoots him. And all the people who you say you have connections with and he's friends with, you can see on their faces the surprise and the shock that this guy stepped forward and shot him. That's not the look of people who are involved and know what's going on. Well, no, because they didn't know what was going on. So you have to understand the way this thing works is if you look at it as a crime from the street level, from the bottom level up, then you have all kinds of problems and, the, and the inconsistencies. And it's like, how could that happen? You have to understand, though, that two things. Number one, the assassination of President Kennedy was a prototype. This had never not happened before, okay? And so as a result, uh, even though they may have had exact planning, it didn't always work out the way they planned. Uh, I, am, I and most of the researchers are convinced that Oswald was supposed to have been killed by police trying to escape or whatever, but it didn't work. He got caught, he got taken alive, he was in police custody, something had to be done. That's when they turned to Jack Ruby, who had been up until that point just a facilitator, okay, moving papers around or giving orders to someone. So who gave Jack Ruby the order to kill Oswald? Well, we don't know. It could have been anybody. Uh, undoubtedly, it was somebody he knew that had real power and clout in organized crime. Uh, somebody like Carlos Marcello or somebody like uh, Sam Giancana. You know, all you got to do is uh, go through a telephone cutout and uh, get in touch with Jack and say, okay, Jack, here's what you're going to do. Maybe it's just my logical mind. Maybe I don't have a logical mind. I don't really see what the Chicago mob is worried about Lee Harvey Oswald saying about them. 
I don't think Jack Ruby is shooting Oswald to protect the Chicago underworld. No, no, it, it's much deeper than that. You, you have to understand uh, the church committee, you know, beginning with that and all the way up there. The uh, CIA, the FBI, organized crime, they were all working together to get Castro. Okay, and so it was not a question of them fearing what Oswald might say. They, there's probably a good chance he didn't know, you know, but they couldn't take the chance. He knew something because he had been in U.S. intelligence. He was uh, uh, been working for the CIA. He was working for the FBI. He implicates everybody. They couldn't have that. They had to get rid of him. And, of course, organized crime was the most uh, quick and accessible way to get to him because of Jack Ruby and his uh, accessibility to the Dallas police and, the, and this police station. All of our resources, we can't kill Castro Yet we can kill Castro with a guy who's a runner from the mob, who's a backup, who finds out the day of the event that he's going to be a shooter. Yeah. Well, there's lots of oddities. And again, you have to understand that uh, if this was just your normal crime, and you start with the victim, and then you go to the suspects, and then you go to the evidence, and you work your way up, okay? But this one is uh, starts from the top down. This is planned at the very highest levels. Uh, of government, and then it trickled down into the soldiers, the, the people that were either CIA operatives or FBI operatives or, or uh, organized crime operatives, and, they, and they're, they're on a uh, compartmentalized basis. They only know what they're supposed to know. Uh, you know, go here, pick up this gun, take it over here. That's all they know. Uh, so that's why, again, how you can keep the secret going. And believe me, government can keep a secret. Uh, at the Manhattan Project, where they developed the atom bomb, more than 30,000 people were working on that, and yet nobody talked. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Hey everybody, I am really, really excited. We have a new sponsor, AquaTrue. This is the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. I know it sounds complicated, but let's put it this way. This is something that can take your tap water and can turn it into your favorite bottled water 
for pennies. You're going to be enjoying the best water, the safest water. And if you haven't read all the news about Flint, Michigan, in every single state, there's over 100 chemicals found in tap water that are not even regulated by the EPA. Many of them are cancer-causing and have lead in them. So you can go to a special website that we've set up called industrystandardwater.com. It takes you directly to the AquaTrue site. And if you get this product, you're going to get $100 off. Just type in 100 in the special code section. You'll get that money off and you'll start saving. You can put a whole huge bottle of Diet Coke in this machine. And 10 minutes later, it'll come out with the best tasting water you've ever had. I got one of these products. It was unbelievable. Industrystandardwater.com. And you'll be enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever tasted. Why do you think that the Kennedy family has been so quiet for so long? Uh, why has the Kennedy family been so quiet so long? That is a very, very good question, actually. But all you have to do is you go back and you realize that uh, what happened with Jackie right after the assassination, she fled to the arms of Aristotle and Nessus who had been, locked, had been locked horns with the CIA and was one of the few people on the earth who probably had the money and the power to protect her uh, because I think she understood that the power had shifted and uh, her basic concern became that for her, for her children. There's so many things that are so confusing, but why didn't Bobby Kennedy or Ted Kennedy or any Kennedy fight to find out what was happening? Uh, well, you know, it's been reported that just a few days before he himself was assassinated in uh, Los Angeles in 1968, uh, Bobby Kennedy told some students out there, they asked him the same question. They said, uh, you know, uh, what about the death of your brother? And he was quoted as saying, I cannot do the, anything about the death of my brother until I have the power of the presidency, which tells me he understood what I understand, which is you'd have to have power over the CIA, the FBI, the Secret Service, uh, the whole federal bureaucracy uh, before you can get to the bottom of uh, who was truly behind the assassination. After all, it was a coup. Do you believe that Robert Kennedy was killed by the same forces that killed his brother? Well, if you step back and, and look at it from the broadest perspective, that's, that's the, the only uh, conclusion you can draw is that, yes, he was killed by the same forces that killed his brother. I mean, you know, what, are they going to wait till the night of the California Democratic primary and he wins it, which sensed him for the national uh, Democratic nomination, which sensed him for the presidency. Now he's got power over him. You think they're going to allow that? No way. So let's go one step further then. If you're going to take out Robert Kennedy, why are you hiring a guy named Sirhan Sirhan to hide in the kitchen? Well, uh, because they didn't hire Sirhan Sirhan. Sirhan Sirhan, and this has been well documented, uh, was under mind control techniques, okay? He showed hypnotic blocks, everything else. He was truly a patsy. Uh, Oswald was a patsy, but he was being manipulated and moved around possibly without even knowing what all was happening, but Sirhan Sirhan absolutely did not know what was happening, and he still can't remember uh, precisely what happened in that kitchen. Uh, the only thing we know for sure 
is that he never got to within six feet of Kennedy from the front firing his little pistol and he only maybe got off one decent shot and then Roosevelt Greer and, and those other football players jumped all over him. Uh, you know, and yet the uh, medical examiner testified in court that the shot that killed Kennedy was fired uh, from behind his right ear into his right mastoid at a range of no greater than three inches. So Sirhan Sirhan did not uh, shoot Robert Kennedy. But there were witnesses who were walking with him. Well, there were witnesses who heard shots, a lot of confusion, and there he was with a smoking gun. You know, uh, he said, I mean, it, it was a great setup. I mean, it, uh, even to the people that were there, I'm sure, felt like, oh, yeah, we saw what happened, except uh, they really didn't. Is there a lot of room in a kitchen to set up shooters? No, no, but you only had to have one. And you go back and read the account that he, he got misdirected into that kitchen. That was not where he was supposed to be going. Who misdirected him? Well, that would call for a legitimate, truthful investigation, which has never happened in either the John F. Kennedy or the Robert Kennedy assassination. Again, when you can control the investigation from the very top, uh, you don't have to, your case doesn't have to be airtight, your plans. Why do you think the mainstream mass media continues to push this Oswald did alone theory? Because of their ownership. Uh, the ownership uh, of the mass media back at the time uh, were all pretty much went along with all this. Uh, they, uh, the uh, corporate America did not like Kennedy at all. He had, uh, he had angered them in several different ways, not only getting, uh, looked like he was not going to get us involved in Vietnam, which of course the military industrial complex wanted, uh, the fact that he was prosecuting the mafia, causing all kinds of problems, the fact that he was talking about taking the oil depletion allowance away from the Texas oil men, the fact that he pulled in tax uh, loopholes for the uh, American corporations with the Tax Act of uh, 1962 uh, angered them to the point to where they said something needs to be done about this. And so when it happened, uh, all of them, of course, were not in on it. They did not. They could not tell you exactly what happened. And even later, probably could not testify to any kind of direct involvement. But they understood the power had shifted. That was OK for them. And they saw to it that their, the news organizations under their control uh, just simply told the official party line and they've stuck with it. And now, see, after 54 years or whatever it is, now they, they can hardly afford to back off and go, uh, well, gee, I guess we missed the biggest story of the century, you know, which uh, would be bad enough. But then, of course, then it would be, well, why do we do that? It's because we went along with it. Who had the power to cover up the assassination of JFK? Um, in 1963, the one person who absolutely had the power to uh, cover up whatever happened to President John Kennedy was uh, J. Edgar Hoover. Uh, and when you consider that he was next door neighbors and a long old buddy with uh, Lyndon Johnson, Kennedy's successor, and the fact that both of them were about to lose their jobs in government, uh, Hoover because of their, the, it was already rumored that the Kennedys were going to force him to retire, 
under the federal retirement uh, gu uh, guidelines, and uh, Johnson, who was under investigation for a number of criminal frauds and, and uh, corruption, and probably would have gone to jail if he hadn't become president. And the fact that then the two of them together, he became president, and Hoover, head of the FBI, got whatever he wanted, okay? Uh, a good example here is the one of the uh, key pieces of evidence against Oswald is that on Monday evening, following the Friday assassination, the Dallas district attorney suddenly announced that uh, we've got his fingerprints on the rifle. Well, that seemed to cinch it in the minds of most people, okay? What they don't know is, is that uh, the Friday night of the assassination, the rifle was illegally and surreptitiously shipped to Washington. The next day, the FBI crime lab examined it and in a document signed by Hoover himself, stated there were no usable fingerprints on the rifle or even the inner parts of the rifle. And then on Sunday, uh, FBI agents brought the rifle back to Dallas they took the rifle to Miller Funeral Home where they were preparing Oswald's body for burial. And the funeral home director, Paul Grudy, told me back then at the time and through the years and has stated publicly that he was there when they put Oswald's dead hand on the rifle. And then that evening they said, oh, we've got his fingerprints on the rifle. Now, you know, under those circumstances, I don't think there's a jury in the world that would have convicted him on that flaky piece of evidence. Can anyone still alive today be held accountable for the JFK assassination? Well, George Herbert Walker Bush is still alive. He probably knows uh, more than than he said. Uh, and there's others. There's probably military officers. There's probably some CIA people, FBI people. But, you know, even them, even those people have been co-opted to the point to where you've got one that'll say one thing, one says another, one truly believes one thing, one truly believes another because that's what he was told. And, uh, you know, they have uh, muddied the waters to the extent to where, uh, you know, it's just, it's all controversial. Uh, and as long as it's controversial, then nothing gets done about it. And that's been the cover-up, not, not the nature of a true cover-up where there's no evidence, but just obfuscation. There's so much information, so much conflicting information that everybody just kind of goes, eh, I don't want to hear anymore. And uh, nothing gets done. It, it was really quite brilliant. You know how homicide detectives, they'll use a phrase, sooner or later, they all mess up. You'd think that somebody who was involved not necessarily in the first 25 years after because the way news and media was disseminated was different but at least in the last 10 or 15 years when the internet is the way it is and you can get your message across or the national Enquirer can pay you two hundred thousand dollars for a story you'd think that somebody who couldn't just bear the burden anymore. Maybe somebody involved suffered from depression, couldn't take it anymore, and needed to get it off their chest. Back in the 70s, when I was teaching a, a course on the Kennedy assassination at the University of Texas, Arlington, I, I told uh, the, my students then, I said, you know, the grassy old gunman could come forward, confess, have some evidence to support his story, and I said, Nobody would buy it, nobody would believe it, nobody would hear it, and the controlled mass media would not spread his story. 
And sure enough, look at James Files. You know, as far as I know, he's still alive. I understand he's now out of prison. Uh, you know, but he's uh, he went on camera. He confessed. And there's uh, there's evidence and, and physical evidence that, that would tend to link him to the crime. And he was connected to the Chicago mob and was uh, intimately involved with people who could be shown to have been involved in the assassination. And yet most people have never even heard of him. And he's never been on national television. And, you know, so, yeah, they've come forward. and People have talked. You just don't hear about it. That the story of James Files should be thoroughly and truthfully investigated, not brushed off like the FBI did. Okay, but am I convinced that he was the shooter? Not a hundred percent. And like I said, there uh, there is at least one other uh, good suspect, uh, and that would be the Dallas policeman Roscoe White, who left behind a diary in which he admitted being the grassy knoll gunman. Okay, but the FBI took that diary and it's not been seen since. So see, more controversy. I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK. It's centered on the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy on the grassy knoll. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary. Go to ikilljfk.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary. I guarantee you it will blow you away. What were the motives for killing JFK and who were his enemies and why? By the fall of 1963, uh, President Kennedy had angered uh, some of the most powerful and violent factions in this country, mainly the mafia. He, he, uh, his brother, Attorney General Robert Kennedy, was prosecuting them not, never before or since. And uh, for them, it was like self-defense, which is, of course, the strongest motivation for murder. Uh, same thing with the CIA. He told the New York Times he was going to splinter the CIA into a thousand pieces and cast it to the winds because he realized how out of control that agency had become. So for them, it was self-defense. Uh, the anti-Castro Cubans who had been working very hard trying to uh, launch another invasion of Cuba uh, and Kennedy was ordered them, ordering them shut down. So again, self-defense. Uh, and, yet, and yet what we know now is that uh, all of these violent factions were working together. Uh, you had Operation Mongoose, which was the secret war against Castro, and it involved elements of organized crime, the CIA, the FBI, the anti-Castro Cubans, all of them mixed in there to include assassination plots, which is well documented. So uh, obviously to me what happened was they decided the real problem was in the White House, not in Havana, and they sent the, the teams to Dallas. Talk a little bit about LBJ. Was he a stable person? Was he mentally stable in 1963? There's been some question over Lyndon Johnson's mental stability all along, but uh, I think by 1963, he was probably fairly stable. But uh, uh, as the years went on and right before his death, he, he became very, very unstable. Uh, and uh, I think, uh, to me, that evidenced some uh, guilt uh, on his part. Now, keep in mind, Johnson, there are those who are arguing that Johnson ordered the 
assassination and saw it through and helped organize it. And I, for one, did not subscribe to that. Uh, Johnson was uh, uh, powerful enough and smart enough. He didn't want to be involved. He didn't want to know all the details, you know. But uh, you have to understand, I mean, it only is common sense that you do not kill the president of the United States unless you have somehow compromised his replacement. You, you don't kill the president unless you're assured that the person that takes his place is not going to come after you. I think one of the most telling bits of circumstantial evidence that uh, points to uh, LBJ's foreknowledge is the fact that uh, at, at Parkland Hospital, before they even left Dallas, Lyndon Johnson was trying to tell anybody who had listened that this was probably the start of a communist plot. So he's already laying it off on the communists, even though they, they weren't sure, you know, what had happened. OK, and much less it was behind it. Uh, but the fact is, is that uh, even though he's telling everybody this is probably a communist plot, could be st the start of World War Three, not once, but twice. He runs off and leaves the military officer, uh, codenamed Football, who were carrying the nuclear launch codes, leaves him behind, forgets about him. He obviously knew there was no foreign plot. He obviously knew that there was no threat of World War III, okay? Very telling piece of evidence right there. All of your stories are drowning in the ocean from all of the evidence you found. And you can save one story to tell the American audience tonight that will blow them away, that maybe has been told obscurely a few times or been in a book here or there, but something that's around this assassination that is truly shocking that you believe is truthful? That's a really good question. And, and, the, and, and my answer is I don't even know where to start. There's, there's so many... Uh, bits and pieces that people really don't know about. But I guess really uh, from a formal uh, criminal investigation standpoint, it would have to start with the botched autopsy of President Kennedy. Here's the president of the United States. He's assassinated. And his is one of the worst autopsies that I've ever heard. And I, I'm an old police reporter. I, back in the day, I used to stand in on the, on the autopsies. And I'd, I'd watch them perform, and they would explain things to me. And I saw how that you can tell uh, which side of the body the bullet entered on and how the wound is beveled so you can tell, you know, which direction it came from. There, We've got the technology to solve these things, and yet it wasn't solved. It was obscured. And uh, to me, that tells the whole story right there. This was a power shift at the highest levels of the federal government. It was a coup d'etat, the coup of 1963. I believe there were four or five different people involved in the autopsy between Bethesda and Dallas. Take us through the trajectory of how the autopsy might have started legitimately and gone astray. There's a very important point to, to the autopsy of JFK, namely that uh, I think this was one of the uh, slip ups, okay, to this prototype of assassinations, which, uh, although well planned, well executed, it didn't really come off exactly the way they had planned. And one of the most important aspects of this was the fact that uh, early on, according to the radio traffic, when they got the plane, they were coming back from Dallas to Washington. It was obvious they had planned to go to Walter Reed Army Hospital. 
Okay, now I suspect that they probably had uh, lined up some very uh, credible autopsy doctors who would give them the verdict that they wanted, probably thought they had everything all set. What happened there was Jackie Kennedy. She said, no, Jack was in the Navy. He didn't want to go to Bethesda Naval Hospital. And so at the last minute, they had to change the hospitals and they had to round up those three doctors who had no uh, no bullet uh, experience, you know, with uh, with bullet wounds. So in this particular case, the first thing that happened, Jackie overruled the FBI, LBJ, the CIA, and she had the power at that moment to overrule them and bring him to Bethesda. That's correct. But that probably was not the first slip-up. I think the first slip-up was allowing Oswald to be taken into captivity alive. But then, yes, then the next big one was Jackie Kennedy, who inserted herself into the plan and had the hospitals changed, which means they had to change doctors, which means they had to... Uh, to uh, make sure that the, that the autopsy was controlled. And that's why that uh, if you really study the details of the Kennedy autopsy, uh, these three doctors were under intense pressure and uh, manipulation by military officers who would not even allow them to do basic autopsy procedures such as examine for bullet wounds in the clothing. They wouldn't allow him to look at the clothing. They wouldn't allow, they were directing him. They said, look at this, don't look at this, okay? Uh, it, it's incredible, but the President of the United States got the, a, a worse autopsy than probably any wino that dies on the street of a U.S. city. Is there any foreseeable path to justice for Oswald's family, for JFK and the Kennedys, for American people, and for the world? And if so, how do you see that coming about? Uh, I think uh, the answer to your question can boil down to one word, truth. It may be too late for justice. Most of the people involved in the assassination are, are now dead, uh, but uh, it's never too late for truth. And with truth could come exoneration for Oswald and his family, uh, for uh, Kennedys would understand better, you know, if they don't already, what's happening. Uh, it's, uh, you know, I heard the phrase for so many years, we have to bind up our wounds, okay, and move on. And that's very true, but we have to do that from a standpoint of truth. As long as the Kennedy assassination is basically unsolved, as long as the vast majority of people are still being hoodwinked uh, by a, a corporate-owned media that does not want to deal with it, uh, you know, the uh, body politic of the United States is going to continue to bleed. It's just going to be an open sore, and we've got to just close that off and move on. Jim Mars amazing thank you so much for being here it was fantastic well that's quite all right and uh, you know you can understand my frustration of having dealt with this uh, ever since the moments after it happened uh and knowing the things i know and that but realizing that my fellow citizens are not being told the same things that i know thank you so much thank you barry Okay, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section, and one of these people will be a lucky winner. 
and they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on Via Vessel, July 21st, 2017. The heading reads, Cindy, I'm a woman and I listen. Five stars. The first time I listened to this podcast was when my boyfriend told me I should listen to the Larry Moss episode. That it would, quote, change my life, unquote. It did. I listened to it three times in a row. I have since then listened to every industry standard that has come out and have also been playing catch-up, listening to old episodes I'd missed. There is so much good to say, I'm sure I'll return and write some more. But for now, I wanted to say this. I just listened to the Cindy Shoepack episode. Cindy, I'm a woman, and I listened to Barry Katz, triple exclamation point. So I might just be one of the two, but hey, maybe I'm the third. Amazing episode, Barry, exclamation point. Thanks for doing this. You don't know how much it's affected my life as an artist for the better. Much love, Olivia. Olivia, thank you so much. That is one of the nicest comments anybody's ever left for me. I really appreciate it. Congratulations. You are a winner. Special thanks to our new sponsor, AquaTrue, the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. Check it out. Go to industrystandardwater.com. Takes you directly to their website. Type in the code 100. Save yourself $100. I have one of these. It's amazing. Start turning your tap water into the best tasting water. Industrystandardwater.com. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. Listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support and have a great day.